Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading FinTech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into FinTech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for FinTech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you US banks to halt layoffs, startups may be barred from stimulus, and April Fools in the age of coronavirus. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 415 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Eric Fulweller. How's it going, Eric? Good, David. How are you? Not bad. I mean, I'm going, uh, I have to say, like my my sort of MO slightly is I'm going from like a very manicured beard to like man of the woods type vibe. By the time we get back into the office, I think I'm going to be um, like full on lumberjack vibe, which is uh, which is interesting. But but I'm happy with that. I feel like um, almost in times like this, Gandalf the Grey needs to kind of come out to a certain degree. You know, how are you uh, dealing with working from home? Yeah, I'm all right. I mean, it's uh, it's week two, so ask me again in you know however long this lasts. I think that's the big question for everybody. But um, I, I think we're lucky. You know, there's a lot of people out there that probably aren't as much in terms of how directly they've been affected and how uh, easy it is for them to lift and shift their job and their routines to work from home. So, you know, we while we do have uh, three kids who are no longer in school, uh, my wife is being amazing and bearing the brunt of that day to day to allow me to do fun podcast recordings like this. So uh, if there is the occasional girl screaming in the background, uh, it's just one of our one of our three girls over here. But it's good. I feel like um you know, we haven't really missed a beat in terms of 11FS. If anything, I feel like we're busier. So we had the um, the benefit of having that flex work policy and having people remote work occasionally already built into the system from a process standpoint, a culture standpoint. So I think it has been a little bit easier for us to adjust. Mm-hmm. It does feel like weird times, I have to say. I mean, it's our um, it's our fourth birthday, 11FS on Sunday. And uh, like, I'm not sure if I should celebrate it or if it's like not not something we should celebrate or whether we should just celebrate it when we come back into the office. I think we probably should celebrate it properly when we come back into the office. But uh, but yeah, I mean, happy birthday to us, I guess. All right. Um, probably what we should say is, I mean, as everybody is doing right now, or at least as most people are doing right now, uh, social distancing is a thing, which you'll notice that we'll all be recording this actually remotely rather than in the 11FS studio or any studio that we're out. So please bear with us. Uh, Alex is doing an amazing job on the audio side of things, but uh, if I sound a little bit more crackly than usual, then you'll um, you'll know why. Or it's the beard. I don't know. It's going to be one of those two things. As always, we're joined by some awesome guests, though, making their FinTech Insider News debuts. We have Alison Esposito Medina, who is the CEO and founder of Tech Ladies. How's it going, Alison? I'm great. How are you? 
Really good. Um, for anybody who's listening, I murdered Alison's name three times in a row and tried it again. But uh, and she's being very, 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 very kind to me to let me have that third run up. But uh, uh, where where in the world today are you, Alison? I'm in New York. I'm based in New York all the time, and I did not leave during this period, even though most people I know are in a cabin upstate somewhere. So um, my husband works in hospitals in New York City, so we are staying here while this all goes down. Wow, it's uh, tough, tough times. How is uh, how is being at home in New York for for this period of time? Um, it's definitely like strange in New York. You know, I mean, obviously everything's closed, and um, you know, so part of it is is totally strange on one side and very stressful, and sirens going off all the time, way more than normal. It's normally a noisy city, but this is like it's both quiet and noisy in this way. That's very strange. Um, but then for me, on the other side of things, like I'm very used to working from home. I run tech ladies as a remote company. We always have been remote. So that part of things is kind of like the same. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Similar to us. It's, uh, it's normal when you're working and then weird when you're not, isn't it? But, uh, um, uh, next up we have Jonah Crane, who is a partner over at Claros Partners Group. How's it going? Going well. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, where in the world are you, Jonah? I am in the swamp in Washington, D.C. Uh, we are also uh, in work-from-home mode. Um, but I'm, I'm a New Yorker at heart and uh, literally can't imagine New York City right now under these conditions. So, Allison, bear with it, and thank you to your husband for doing his good work at the hospitals. Yeah, really front line. Uh, and last but uh, no means least, we have Nonita Verma, who is East Coast Banking Partnerships Lead over at Nova Credit. How's it going, Nonita? Well, David, thank you, as, as well as it can be. Whereabouts in the world are you? Um, I'm hunkering down in Philadelphia. I'm normally based in New York, though, but I've been here for two and a half, three weeks. Okay. Uh, how's uh, how's things in Philadelphia right now? Um, Philadelphia definitely is quieter than New York, just much, much fewer people in general, and it feels much quieter, although I'm staying pretty much indoors and not really exploring the city and making the most of all the different parks and, and green that is all over the city but hope to get to know the city a little bit better in better times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, going to be uh, probably less upbeat uh, stories today than uh, and uh, probably uh, one major thing that's going to be dominating all the way through this. So uh, bear with us, guys, but we'll uh, we'll sort of keep going through the, the things that is there. Um, so getting on with the news uh, as it is, uh, first story over on CNBC, we have US banks promise not to lay off workers during coronavirus pandemic. So the CEOs of Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, have each pledged to halt any layoffs through to the end of 2020. Citigroup, meanwhile, will temporarily suspend planned layoffs. Uh, These plans come as banks offer more compensation to lower-level employees. Bank of America is paying bank tellers $400 more per month and promised that employees who couldn't work would still receive their paychecks. Both JP Morgan Chase and Citigroup have announced cash bonus plans for staff uh, actually in employment currently. I mean, this is a, a good step um, I mean, this is a good thing that banks are kind of doing. I wonder how much do you think the uh, government has, um, you know, pushed to ensure that these steps are taking place, Eric? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you got to figure it's not just, um, you know, leadership for these banks sitting in a room by themselves making these decisions. Because I think the biggest thing, the biggest pressure on on any business right now, but certainly ones of that scale that are at 
such the center of what of what's going to happen um, and taking the brunt of the impact is we just don't know how long it's going to last or what the full implications are going to be. So I would imagine that there's more to this story than just what the headline reads. And the other thing for me is, um, you know, you always wonder, it's an amazing headline. And I think that that's the thing that most people are worried about right now is their jobs and their income. So anything they can do on that front, I think is great. I think the, um, you know, if it really is a blanket, like nobody's going to get laid off, you know, I'd be uh, I'd be a little bit surprised. So I wonder if there is any type of kind of asterisk or um, or um, you know subjectivity to this. Mm. Well, I suppose layoffs and furlough, you know, quite different things, aren't they? So um, I think um, in this first period of this uh, the pandemic, you know, global pandemic, the government focus is very much about reducing the amount of unemployment isn't it i mean um numbers have uh, hit pretty high levels of uh, unemployment and people going to ask for uh, for aid uh, in the us right now so anything they can do to limit that better right it's really crazy i mean i think the numbers just came out for last week um and it was even double the week before which was it was 3 million the week before and it was six and a half i think for last week so the um the record before that was sub a million. I think it was about 700,000. So just the impact of it again, in just the first few weeks, not having even gotten to peak, much less the follow on impacts on economic activity. Um, it's just kind of staggering. Mm. What do you think, Jonah? Uh, it feels like um, feels like a good step by those big banks to to um, sort of offer their support and actually give confidence to their employees that they're um, sitting on good foundations. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, and I think it, it shows leadership by them. I also um, can't help but think that especially the biggest banks who who went through all the problems in the crisis and the blowback they experienced after that um, are trying to get ahead of those kind of issues this time around. Um, in particular, since they're not the source of or at the heart of the crisis, they're going to they're going to bear a brunt of this like everybody. Um, you know, it's worth noting that that banks in particular in the U.S. come into this crisis with you know, a much stronger balance sheet than they had in the midst of the last crisis. And they've been encouraged by regulators to use that balance sheet and their capital surpluses to offer relief to consumers in the form of mortgage and other loan forbearance, um, you know, waiving uh, ATM fees and overdraft fees and so forth. And so I think they've been, they've been pushed to use that, that balance sheet strength here. Um, we'll see how long that will last given how long this crisis lasts, but I think they've um, they tried to get out ahead of uh, the kinds of issues that they ran into in the wake of the last crisis, for sure. Mm. And and I think to to sort of you know further that point, I mean the hard thing, the I mean the most difficult thing with this really is we just don't know how long this is going to last, do we? Um, you know, I think with with many sort of. Um, you know, disasters, whether it's a, you know, a flood or a hurricane or, or anything, then actually you sort of, you have a good enough view of the, the duration of the problem and therefore going from, uh, you know, putting up with it to dealing with it pretty quickly. Whereas this, we just, we just still don't know really. Um, I guess the other thing to say as well is, I mean, given the other crisis that we sort of faced with with regards to the financial crisis within 2008, then uh, actually the the banks are uh, the bearers of good news in this one rather than bad news, right? Actually, we've got a lot of organizations who are doing a huge amount to really get on board with either the stimulus packages that the, the governments are putting together or really doing a lot to try and support smaller SMEs. Um, but it's it's interesting to see how people kind of react. What, what do you think, Nonita? Do you think um, do you think this is a, a good step from the those those big organizations? 
Definitely, David. I, I think I, I kind of agree that the banks are in a much stronger position this time around. Uh, also, there have been a lot of lessons learned from the financial crisis, right? So avoiding uh, overwhelming panic or broad panic is very, very, very important. The second thing is I feel banks are trying something new. They are trying to keep their businesses running using technology and using a broad-based work-from-home approach. And more or less, banks seem to be coping pretty well with that, right? But I think uh, one compassion, one part of this whole response is compassion, uh, whether or not it's driven by regulation, potentially is. But one part of this is compassion and giving people um, that kind of reassurance that the jobs are safe. Looking in from the outside, another aspect of it is as a good business, as a business owner, this is good sense, right? You have to you have to tell your biggest resource, the people who are keeping things running, you have to tell them that things are going to be fine. If you are going to for a month or two or a little bit more extended period than that, keep the business running in this modality, then people have to feel comfortable that they can actually work without having to worry about where the next meal is coming from. So I think it's a very good step and a very important one. Mm. I mean, it's a difficult one. And actually, again, it's a bold one on their part, given, I mean, particularly in the UK right now, branches are shut, you know, like literally there is no ability for us to go anywhere to go to a branch network. So frontline staff in call centers, in branches, uh, you know, I think the I think the wording of this is probably very precise about redundancies, but um, but I guess we'll we'll sort of um, you know see what happens on this this next step on this one. Uh, have you got anything to add to that, Alison? Yeah, I would just say I think it's both great that they're doing it, but also smart for them because they're not going to have to come back and rehire everybody if you panic and let everybody go. It's going to take a long time to build up your teams, even if you don't think these people are hard to find. Um, hiring is very hard. And so trying to keep people in is smart. I also think one other aspect is how it looks to other people on the outside. So if you have your money in this bank and you hear that they're just laying people off left and right, I mean, that could cause panic for people who are consumers of these banks or who work with them. So there's a lot of angles to it that benefit them other than just the right thing to do or a great thing to do. Um, But I think that that's, that's great and will help them a lot in the long run. And it's, it's like a long-term plan versus just short-term panic, lay everybody off and figure it out later. It's not a good plan either. Yeah. I mean, for, for organizations who have got a, enough uh, cash flow, as obviously these organizations do from a, the scale of them, then it makes a, a great deal of sense, like you say, to, um, to think about it strategically from a, from a steps perspective. Do you, do you have a point on that, Jonah? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Allison, great point on maintaining attachment between workers and the workforce. I think, you know, hopefully it works out well for these banks. Um, that's one of the overriding policy objectives for many of the crisis response measures that have come out of Congress and other regulators. We'll, we'll see how effective they are. I think there are there are big gaps in those. Maybe we'll talk about those later in the program. But um, with respect to the banks and the other kinds of relief they've been offering, I, I mentioned before that we'll see how long it lasts. And I think one of the areas we'll pu- push will come to shove is, you know, what happens in three months or six months when loan forgiveness for student loans or mortgages starts to run out or loan forgiveness on your auto loan starts to run out um, and people are still hurting because, um, you know, the attachment between them and their and their employer, for example, has been broken and how banks and financial services institutions uh, service their customers in those tough times um, when, when this sort of mandated for, forbearance period um, ends will 
uh, will be, you know, that that's when that's when I think push will come to shove and we'll see if they're really able to live up to those commitments. And those are the kinds of challenges that they faced, um, you know, in the wake of the mortgage crisis um, and, and so much of the trouble that they that they faced afterwards arose from that. So, um, you know, we'll check back in in the summer or the fall, um, I think, is <laughs> sort of the watchword here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think these um, these policies, like you say, and, and any anybody's decision, I think, is going to change uh, week to week. Uh, I think if anything, I think we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing more uh, policy from government and changes from a government perspective day in, day out to deal with these things. And I imagine from a bank's perspective, they're going to be doing exactly the same thing. So it's a monitor, try and uh, make good decisions uh, as you can on the fly, which if if I'm honest with you, I mean, there's a lot of talk on online and in various different guises, but the reaction of organizations is pretty impressive right uh, i think uh, nanita you you made the point of the reaction of big organizations to be able to even move to 100 percent working from home practices is uh, is amazing i mean I, I sort of joked on linkedin i think people have done more in the last two months for working from home policies than they did in the previous 15 years so uh you know it just shows really the thing that was not lacking was uh you know more strategies on these things it was really about having an external stimulus for action right yeah, yeah, absolutely, David. It's it's a good point. I think what I've noticed happening, and I spent 16 years working in banks before I sort of joined the uh, a startup and before that VC side. But what I've noticed in the last few years is that there have been significant leaps in just both technology, but also technology acceptance by large organizations. And I think banks were a little bit behind the curve on that, but they've definitely caught up. And so they have been testing, even if it's not been um, significant periods, like somebody working from home the entire time, but there definitely has been a lot more testing of that modality, um, you know, allowing people to work from home, say a couple of times a week. Uh, just, it's good business sense. I always come back to that because it's good business sense because, you know, your rental is, um, is a big part of people's expenses. And if you can reduce that by allowing people to work from home, it meets both objectives, right? So it meets, it gives people flexibility and makes your employees happy but it also cuts down some of the expenses. So I think that testing had already been happening and this just this external stimulus, as you called it, or um, uh, the trigger allowed people to truly go all in. Mm, agree. Um, moving on, I guess, from big banks to, um, to startups onto the next story. So we had a story over on CNBC, which was venture-backed startups may not be eligible for small business stimuluses within the US right now. So um, $350 billion of the $2 trillion stimulus package, that was earmarked for small businesses, um, which is a huge amount of money. You know, It just shows how much is being put towards just trying to keep people employed and then actually trying to keep these businesses in business. Um, but apparently in a affiliation rule could prevent startups with backing from venture capital or private equity from actually accessing those funds. Uh, the rule dictates that if a company has taken money from private investors, its employee employees could be affiliated with those as at the investor or portfolio companies. So the Small Business Administration says the rule could be triggered if a venture firm owns more than half of the company's voting stock. I mean, this is quite worrying. I don't know, and, and it doesn't sort of quantify how many organizations are going to be in that space. Um, but if you just look at the amount of um, small businesses, or even, I mean, players like Cabbage, who this week have had to furlough more than 500 of its its staff, uh, I mean, these are 
not really startups i'd say these are you know mid-scale scale-ups at this this point aren't they that actually could be very significantly hit by the the changes that have happened here i mean jonah what what do you think on this one because it it feels like probably in in your wheelhouse really in terms of the uh the 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 impact that this could have yeah i mean we're certainly working with lenders and potential borrowers to try and figure out how to navigate um, the affiliation rules, among other things. And I think that the whole venture-backed community and private equity-backed community is worried about the application of not just the, affili- uh, the affiliate rules, um, which SBA could, in theory, waive and, and could provide some clearer guidance or maybe some bright-line thresholds. They've suggested maybe if you're below 20%, you're sort of exempted. But there are a bunch of certifications. If you look at the, they, they put out a streamlined two-page borrower application, and there are a whole bunch of certifications you, you have to make about um, you know, what your affiliated companies have or haven't done in terms of taking out other SBA loans and so forth. And I, I don't know that anybody's in a position to make those kinds of certifications with respect to, say, their venture uh, investors. Um, and I just point out that the affiliate rules are, are more complicated than just owning a majority. It's, you know, if you have one example they give in the guidance itself is if you have three uh, uh, investors, each of whom own 23% and nobody else owns more than 5%, the SBA would consider that uh, sort of control or affiliation relationship. So all of those companies would be affiliated with each other. So I, I think it's, it's causing big problems. I mean, we've been in touch with the NVCA and, and the venture community and, and trying to find a way forward here. It's not, um, not obvious what that will be. Okay, uh, Eric. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I can I can see from one end if you think of you know the people who are debating these laws and the and the public perception of venture backed startups. I think a lot of that connotation points in the direction of the blitzscaling companies who have raised a ton of money and maybe haven't spent it in the smartest way possible. Contrasted with how people think about small businesses, which is you know the mom and pop shop on the high street, or you know my father-in-law and his furniture business in Boston, which of course is doing no business while this is going on. But I think I think there's so much more nuance that needs to come out of it because uh, I mean, like you said, Jonah, like this stuff can get so complicated and figuring out those structures and those affiliations and all that stuff. And when it comes to stimulus and making it effective, particularly in a crisis as intense as this one, it needs like the money needs to flow quickly in order for it to work. Right. So I think there are some people in that VC world that maybe have been propped up by false economics. And I think this uh, will reset some of those dynamics in the VC-backed startup world. But the fact of the matter is, there's millions of people that work at these companies and jobs is one of the most important things right now. So I think they need to figure it out and figure it out quickly. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, it does feel a little bit, I mean, across the globe right now, it does feel like the the policies and the the packages that are being put together I mean, they are literally things that people are throwing together overnight to try and address issues. Uh, And in doing that, in some instances, they're ruling out huge swathes of people that you you can't be sure that it was intentional, but actually they have the opportunities, I guess, to continue to to rethink these things and come back with uh, sort of revised things. And I think that's happened. I mean, globally, I feel like there's two or three times that things have been revised to make sure that the actual intention of helping small businesses and making sure businesses are sort of kept on track um, is is sort of maintained in that period. But what do, what do you think, Alison? This feels like um, if it was purposeful, it feels like it excludes quite a large group of, uh, you know, uh, big impacting companies. Yeah, I think if if there's ever going to be a takeaway from this in long term, I think that's something that I hope that it does with 
startups in Silicon Valley is to think about really figuring out how to generate revenue much earlier. Um, I understand, obviously, with some like R&D and some things you're building, you just need a ton of venture capital and a ton of years. Um, But, you know, there's also a lot of companies who just have been sitting around chilling with their venture capital, trying things left and right, no plan to generate revenue. And um, I think that's going to be a big lesson um, at the end of all this is that, you know, um, if there's no help coming to bail you out and you didn't build a sustainable company in time, like if there's a huge downturn, that could just be the thing that takes your company out. And so you need to be like building and thinking all the time to proof against that. Um, obviously, nobody could have ever built something to proof against this or thought that this was coming. But it's just, you know, recessions come, depressions come like I've already lived through one recession, so why wouldn't there be another one? Um, so I think that will be a, like a long-term big lesson for startups that take a lot of venture capital. Like maybe you don't need that giant office, you know, maybe you don't need to hire 200 people yet. Like how can you take it slower? How can you generate revenue and p- try to put yourself in the best position so that you won't be reliant on these things when the economy fails? Because it will fail again. You know, this isn't mm. just, yes, this is the worst one in our life so far, but it's probably going to happen again in all of our lives. It's very true. Yeah, I mean, these things are getting a lot closer to one another, whether it's, um, uh, you know, a, a downturn that's sort of man-made or otherwise, isn't it? So, I mean, I think the interesting point on, on that, as you say, is like, actually, there are the startup you know, build quickly, spend the VC money, you know, scale to the point. I mean, arguably, the the organizations who are most precarious right now are the ones who were planning on raising uh, ahead of what was predicted to be an economic downturn anyway, because if you hadn't got your money in already, your valuation for your organization is dramatically reduced. And therefore, your ability to raise now is going to be is going to be harder, given everybody's belts are sort of tightening a little bit as well. So, I mean, it does it does sort of point to, um, you know, a problem in the model there to a certain degree, which is uh, if you're purely ever relying on VC money to accelerate, uh, then actually that that could run out at some point. I think the the interesting thing is, I mean, for organizations like Cabbage, you know, Cabbage have been doing very well. Um, to see a good loan book turn to a bad loan book overnight because of, you know, all of the potential uh, delinquencies in in the lending book that actually will come with all of these things. I mean, like you say, it's it's almost unpredictable. But um, but I guess the, the way to um, whether any sort of winter is money in the bank, right? Yeah, definitely. Revenue. Revenue always Figuring wins. Figuring out how to um, make money. <laughs> anyways, I mean, I'm pretty, I've always say I'm pretty old fashioned on that one, but businesses making money seems like a good idea to me. But uh, what, do, what, do you, what do you think, Nonita? It feels like, um, feels like there's a lot, uh, lots of things for these guys to do, but it feels like a, a bit of a big gap for, um, for small businesses to, to climb right now. Um, I could not agree more. I, th- I feel I feel very strongly for small businesses. Um, y- you know, whether it's like Eric was mentioning, whether it's a mom and pop brunch shop, which is kind of steady business, uh, may not be extensive growth, but they are. They've been running for a while, and they hope to continue to running. That's their livelihood. Or it's startup world, which is growing really fast. Whether or not the focus is right now on sustainable revenues, but they are creating a lot of jobs for the economy. Um, I believe in 2019, over 2 million jobs were created by startups across the U.S., right? So that definitely gives a boost to to the economy in many different ways, as well as to innovation. I'm still curious, though, 
um, uh, David, what you were mentioning earlier, was the intention to leave out the, you know, VC-backed companies. I'm not sure. I'm still curious to see where this lands, right? I read an interesting article in the Forbes. um, I think it was put out by uh, Ed Zimmerman, which is Lowenstein, Sander LLC, and they were basically saying they could be a miss. It, it's it's open to interpretation which part of the act they were looking at. One or three or three or one. Don't remember the specificities of that right now, but it could be that we are looking at it um, in a wrong way, and the intention wasn't to leave the startups out. So I'm curious to see where that falls, and I hope that startups are included um, along with the rest of the small businesses in in getting some access to this relief fund. Yeah, I think if they weren't, then I think probably some pretty quick pressure will uh, will get those guys to uh, to have a look at uh, probably what their intentions were and clarify it for sure. All right, moving on, we have a story over on Finextra. This was uh, two of the big boys kind of getting involved to to offer their help to try and uh, distribute some of that stimulus. So Square and PayPal have both offered uh, to extend their payments capability to allow uh, distribution of funds to the unbanked. So both companies are in talks with the US government about using Cash App and Venmo to offer funds to Americans without bank accounts. So 14% of Americans with income under 40,000 lack a bank account, which is a pretty staggering, staggeringly large percentage, um, I imagine, of, uh, of, the, of the population. So it's currently unclear whether the Treasury will work with either of the company, uh, although the organizations is still determining the information it can share with those companies. I mean, a, that is a 14% of people under $40,000 income. That's a huge number, Eric. That is a big number. It's um, I I I really like this story because I think one thing that I just fundamentally believe in is perspective is everything, right? So it's so easy for us sitting in London and New York and wherever we are to think of the world the way that we see it and the way that it is for us, but we're such a small minority. And when you think of the financial service ecosystem and how it serves us, it serves or in many ways doesn't serve. Uh, a huge number of people in a very different way. So I love, and we've seen this in a few different places, and even even us, David, 11FS, getting involved with the COVID credit credit um, initiative with the government over here. How can you use technology as it exists right now to try to bring some benefit and value to those who are who are underserved? Um, so I think that you know, of course. Uh, this is a massive net negative in terms of what's playing out and the impact it's going to have on people. But I think there are some of these kind of silver linings and opportunities where uh, the value that can be brought through technology and innovation is actually getting accelerated. Well, it, and it, it makes total sense, right? Because, I mean, playing through the scenarios, it's like, okay, so we're going to distribute funds. Okay, cool. Uh, what about for people without bank accounts? Uh, well, can they go into a branch? not really. Uh, we can't really sort of ask people to leave their homes and sort of wander into branches right now. So, I mean, the idea of being able to a bank people very quickly or, you know, bank in inverted commas, which doesn't really work very well on a podcast, I, I assure you, uh, but being in a situation where actually you can just distribute funds to people, then, I mean, Venmo and PayPal are like OGs of that in the US, right? So sort of relying on those guys for distribution of funds is 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 really big. I mean, what do you think to Alison? Uh, do, do you think this is um, those players kind of doing good by the community and, and sort of helping people out? Yeah, definitely. I think it's smart to use things that are already built to get, you know, this money in in people's pockets in a streamlined way. If anything, I'm thinking like, you know, 
even people with bank accounts might just want to get it through their cash app. This is so much easier in some ways than trying to figure out, you know, how, how else they'll execute it, getting an ECH transfer, whatever else they're going to do. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's maybe just a segment of the population of people who would rather just get it that way anyway, not even just the unbanked. But I think that obviously for them, it's it's even more important. Mm. I mean, it's another example of, I mean, we talked about the working from home practices earlier on. I mean, this is by no means a done deal. So I don't want to, I don't want to make out like this has been signed off yet. But I mean, if they did do this, and actually the government started using Venmo for distribution of funds, then I mean, why have they not done this before would be would be a, like a, a big thing. Why is it taking such a big, uh, a big requirement like this to, to push people to start using the most effective way of actually distributing these things? But what, what do you think, Jonah? Is this a good idea? I mean, the, the story highlights a clear and obvious problem. And, and you just put it well, which is how do we, you know, uh, if we're having such problems getting, getting, getting money to companies, and this would be a good idea, why aren't we doing it already? I think, um, you know, the, the question I have is sort of how PayPal and Square and so forth would propose to actually solve the problems that the government is running into. So the, the first problem the government has is, you know, linking up, you know, carbon-based individuals with social security numbers and making sure that the the person who's going to receive, targeted to receive a payment can and will. The second is identifying that they have uh, an account that you can send it to. And this is where we run into problems. So if you um, receive a tax refund, great. Uh, we have an account for you. If not, there are other systems, social security, veterans benefits, food stamps, and certain welfare programs that we may have a link to you and be able to send you money. Everybody else, the government is sort of struggling to figure out how to get that money. And I think it just shows that we have some really kludgy infrastructure for getting getting money out to people. And hopefully it's completely rebuilt as a result of this crisis. And maybe the tech companies can be part of that. I don't know if the government's going to sign up right now for a massive customer acquisition uh, trawl by uh, Cash App and Venmo. It, I mean, it, it is an interesting point because, as you say, um, whenever there is something horrific happening like this, there is always groups of people who are looking to take an opportunity of that. I mean, the uh, the random uh, SMS uh, sort of. Uh, malware, you know, phishing type uh, capability that's sort of kicking in over in the UK right now, pretending to be the NHS or various different things. Um, so to your point, being very clear about who you're distributing those funds to is not as easy as just saying, you know, sign up for Venmo and we'll send you your money, is it? I mean, um, I, I think it's good to see these companies sort of step up. And I guess it will be really interesting to see whether the US government sort of takes them up on their offer. I know there's been a, a kind of a call to arms in terms of anybody who's got a, good, a, got a good idea, come to us and talk to us and, you know, please lend us some help. So, I mean, it's good to see big companies kind of stepping in and, uh, uh, and offering a little bit of help in these troubling times. All right. On that note, guys, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back to you very shortly. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology with over 80 million users trusted by the world's largest banks for KYC, onboarding and re-verification. MyTech provides the highest assurance levels available building trust in today's digital world. See how MyTech Systems can help you. That is M-I-T-E-K, MyTech. 
Switching up your morning routine now is all about social distancing, isn't it? And so are we putting that into effect. In fact, we've started a daily morning show. On the Fintech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news and series of industry guests, all calling in remotely, of course. It goes live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 BST. Uh, If you follow me over on David Breer on LinkedIn, you'll get alert from me every morning when we go live. And if you are US-based and 8.30 BST, is a little bit too early for you. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you. We have a US breakfast show as well. Hosted by Sam Moore, we'll be going live at 10.30 EST. So grab a coffee, head over to the 11FS LinkedIn channel, and you'll get that daily notification when we go live there as well. Uh, and for both shows, don't forget that to add your comments into the thread. We love hearing from you while we're recording those things. It's good to kind of get you guys involved. All right, guys, back on with the show. So next up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is, I, I thought, quite a weird one. But honestly, this has been so popular this week, both in terms of the 11FS Slack channel and more broadly, Microsoft partners with Plaid on Excel finance tool. So money in uh, Excel uh, uses bank and credit card data to track and analyze users' finances over in Excel. Um, The tool imports transactions and account balances automatically. Uh, It also offers personalized insights and alerts concerning price changes on reoccurring payments, bank fees, and more. I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, we've done a lot of um, jobs to be done frameworks around the globe on uh, what is the ways in which people manage their money, whether it's SMEs or whether it's uh, individuals, it always comes back to a funky spreadsheet that people are kind of creating that actually they deal with. And that's how people really feel comfortable actually managing their money. Um, you know, everybody has a slightly different way of doing it. And everybody has a, uh, you know, almost a comfort zone that Excel doesn't judge them. But um, what do you think, Eric? Is it is like is the um, we've come a long way since um, you know Excel nineteen ninety two when I really kind of got into it. But uh, is Excel the best way of managing your finances? I mean, is it the best way? Probably not. Is it the way that a lot of people can actually get it done if they're doing anything to try to understand and manage their finances? Probably. So you know, it's a little bit of kind of a bring it to the people where they are uh, if you can't get them to come to you. But I, I think it's, I mean, I certainly do some of my budgets in Excel. Um, but I think it's also interesting, Plaid, you know, doing something that's a little bit more consumer facing. So I wonder if there's something there in terms of their strategy and where they're going as well. Hmm. It, it is interesting. I mean, uh, in all of the things that we've, like say, that we've ever really looked at, people are using Excel almost out of a necessity because, uh, what's been offered to them from financial organizations doesn't meet the need that they really have. Um, so to to sort of almost supercharge Excel in the middle of it is a really, really interesting step. You know, it's definitely, it's not a wrong one, but I'm not sure this is, this is the future of digital banking, you know, smarter Excel sp- spreadsheets. But uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Excel, but uh, but uh, it, it feels like actually this is, this is sort of taking it in a slightly different direction. Uh, what do you think, Jonah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God, I hope it's not the future, right? Um, I have been shocked uh, in consumer research that that um, you know I've seen from clients and so forth that how many people do use Excel to manage their budgets. Um, not something that was sort of on my radar 
until a couple of years ago. So I do think that's, you know, to, to a large degree, that's the problem that a lot of these um, neobank challenger banks, et cetera, some of whom some of whom I've worked with over the years are trying to solve is how do I actually make it easy for people to manage their money and be in control without having to, you know, pull together these these sort of funky systems. I think the fact that Plaid is taking a step to make it easier is great. I think they've been they've been good at doing that across the fintech landscape. This is a, a good next step. And Eric, to your point, being a little more consumer facing is something um, something that they started over the last year or so, rolling out My Plaid, where if you use your if you use Plaid to connect any of your accounts, um, you can now go to Plaid and see which accounts are connected where. So, um, I think they've been taking those steps over time. Uh, full disclosure: I was an advisor to, to Plaid for a while, so um, watched a little bit of the development of that process. But I think the broader point you're making, David, is right, which is I hope this isn't the future. I hope a tool like this is obsolete in a few years if if some of the neo banks can get it right. Um, but for now, that's what people are doing, and uh, this helps them do it better. Um, more power to them. It's 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 only more needed right now in this particular moment. Mm. Well, if uh, I mean, it definitely sort of accelerates their ability to manipulate the numbers, right? Because you know, funky ways of getting you know XLS out of a, uh, a banking interface. If this is a way that they can actually start manipulating the data quicker, but I, I guess the challenge there is that most people just don't understand finance well enough to manipulate this information in a way that actually would allow them to make decisions, which ultimately is what they're looking to achieve. So what it kind of really opens up people to do is um, their weird and wonderful ways of doing finance, which um, could be could be sort of quite dangerous. I'm not I'm not knocking your spreadsheet at all, Eric. I'm sure you're a very good accountant on your in your part time, but uh, but it'll be interesting to see what everybody's process really is, you know. It's it's interesting though because um, you know just kind of thinking it through, focus group of one. Just my perspective and, and why I do have to use spreadsheets sometimes is I feel like we're still again like we're we're all in this world where we're kind of at the bleeding edge of uh, what truly digital can look like in financial services and, and personal finance. But really, it's still so early, and so many of the problems to be solved and the jobs to be done in personal finance management is still not solved by even what we consider to be the most advanced kind of technology and, and services out there. So you can do a lot looking at your budget in Monzo, but you can't play around with the numbers and you can't do the forecast. And there's so much that can't be done. So, you know, it's still very, very early on, but I do, I totally agree. Hopefully this isn't the future because it does seem like this is uh, bringing people back towards older technology as opposed to newer technology, but there certainly is a need that isn't being solved for by even uh, the newer startups out there right now. Agree. What do you think, Allison? Well, I've just been listening to this conversation and I'm thinking, wow, like I've always been allergic to Excel. I don't understand it. I never did. I was never one of those whizzes who could like actually make it do anything interesting. Um, and I gl totally glaze over when I look at any kind of spreadsheet. Um, that's why even like simple products like Airtable or Bench, which I use for tech ladies for our business, um, has been really great because it's so much more visual. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think that like as much as there are like people out there who probably love this and all of the, the things you can do with it, um, I think there's probably there's got to be a segment of the population like me that's just like, ugh, I do not want to look at a spreadsheet at all. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, I, I can't get excited about that. Like I need somebody to come out and build something that's exciting that I could use. Well, that, 
Well, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think it's you want those organizations to bring their expertise to you, don't you? Which is rather than, uh, I mean, if I if I wanted to be an accountant and a banker, I would have been an accountant and a banker type thing. You know, you've you've uh, you've sort of uh, you've you've chosen not to do that, so you don't need to. So I think that's where, and and really, if I'm honest with you, this is the this is the value add, should, or it should be the value add of lots of organizations sort of coming over the top of this is providing their expertise to these things. So. Um, what, what do you think, Nonita? Yeah, I, I, so I'm probably a little bit more comfortable with spreadsheets, just kind of given started in investment banking. But having said that, again, similar to Alison, not something you'd get super excited about. But at the same time, from Plaid's perspective, they got a lot of the low-hanging fruit, right? So they kind of going going the the large institution angle, and and they are now getting to to the segment that was not going to adopt. Um, their early technology in, in, in whatever form or shape. So I think in a way, I feel that this is a way to understand what people need, right? So I don't know how much data will find its way back to Plaid uh, through this, but at the same time, it allows you to say, what, what are people's needs? What other features do I need to build? What are the solutions do I need to build? And I think in a way, this could be a stepping stone to, to finding those solutions, I agree. Uh, well, I think we all agree. Hopefully, Excel is not the future, but uh, we'll uh, we'll monitor this one. And if it takes off, then uh, we'll uh, we'll see what everybody says at that stage. Uh, Alison, you might have to uh, start learning Excel a little bit harder. But no, uh, I will never. I have gotten to the age of thirty-seven, and I still don't have to do it. And I'm never going to do it. Like, I, there's got to be others who are like, no, no, never Excel. Look, we, look, you've got three months in isolation. Okay, you can work out how to use Excel. Okay, I'll, maybe I'll. Dust it off and take another look. Sounds good. All right, moving on. Uh, we have a story over another story over on uh, CNBC. So this is Morgan Stanley's trading portal suffers an outage. Uh, a software bug from a third-party vendor took out online services for one of the world's largest wealth managers last Wednesday. So Morgan Stanley stressed that the problem was not due to trading volumes or remote working, which I think were. I mean, Twitter leaped to uh, all sorts of assumptions of uh, of what this was from people kind of moving money out of the markets to um, somebody kicking a plug out uh, while working from home. Uh, the system was down for several hours, but had been recovered by the next day. Uh, in case where clients had stock prices that moved against them, Morgan Stanley honored that preferable price, which is pretty huge. That must have cost them a lot of money. Um, the move comes weeks after Robinhood suffered a series of outages, including one uh, on a historic day trading for the Dow Jones. So, I mean, that's a very interesting point. Like maybe let's stick to the Morgan Stanley piece and then come back to the Robinhood one after that. But I mean, this is a pretty big problem for a very large company, right? Um, what do you think, Eric? I mean, do you believe the the rationale? This wasn't people slowing down, taking them slowing down people taking money out, right? I mean, I, I doubt it, but I guess you never really know. But, um, you know, I feel like these things keep popping up and um, I don't know if they're getting more frequent or not, but I think that as just the uh, activity of financial services moves increasingly online, like it's going to become more and more uh, just a thing that happens because it's so interconnected and there's so many dependencies and, you know, some little things can affect a lot of people. So I do think at least from where we sit looking at the news every week, it's kind of become like, oh, another one of those. Now, I'm sure there's details to this one that are different than what happened to Robin Hood and all that stuff. But um, but uh, I think it's going to become more and more kind of the norm that we see these types of headlines. Mm. I mean, a retail outage of payments for an hour is kind of one thing, but uh, you know, one of the um, 
your biggest wealth manager in the world, seven hours trading outage. That's a uh, pretty, pretty huge thing. So Nonita, what do you think of this? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, David. I'm not super familiar with this aspect. The only thing I can say is that this, you know, the, the trading, the trading itself, there is a huge amount of, uh, trading and that happened in the last few weeks, right? As people try to either get out of positions or, or benefit in some ways from the opportunity that was created. So it, it was the volumes were just higher. Uh, if I think about the trading desks at various brokerages, not everybody is sitting in front of their typical monitors um, in the office. And so that creates its own set of issues. But I kind of see it as, okay, so it happened because a lot of these brokerages and banks are testing new ways of working. Is it going to keep happening? Possibly. Is it going to be human error at some point? likely um are we going to see other things that we haven't thought about yet very likely right so i'm kind of taking it in my stride and saying yeah it happened and it happened at one of the larger institutions but it's it's not as if these large institutions are used to doing this used to working or operating in the way that they are right now that's unprecedented for everybody so maybe folding in the the robin hood piece then because i mean i, I guess the Look, Robinhood went down uh, and everybody was like sort of, ha see these startups, you can't trust them, can you? And, uh, you know, not like these good old reliable gigantic organizations. And and it just sort of shows, I mean, technology is technology, right? You, uh, there will be outages, there will be uh, issues in things. I mean, it it's concerning that even in the, the biggest, you know, in, in, in normal times, even in the biggest outage, for it to take several hours to fully restart. I mean, you should be able to fully disaster recovery the entirety of, of Morgan Stanley's entirety of systems in seven hours. So, I mean, it was interesting to see that it took them so long to kind of get it back online. Um, but but arguably, uh, probably the guys at Robinhood are probably feeling quite uh, quite comforted off the back of this one, aren't they? What do, what do you think, Alison? Yeah, I mean, I think like mistakes can happen anywhere at any organization of really any size. And I do think something like Robinhood would make people feel more, you know, worried or something um, than if it happens at a bigger bank. But I also, yeah, I think these things just happen um, and are going to happen. And I think it's just so much harder when it's tied to people's money, because if Twitter goes down or Facebook goes down, not that that's happened in a long time, but like these, you know, if you remember five, 10 years ago, these services used to go down and people were like, oh my gosh, but their money wasn't tied up in it. It was just like, okay, I can't read some news and catch up with my friends for a little while. So the stakes are just so much higher for them to get this right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've worked at big organizations. I've seen like things go down at, you know, with the best engineers in the world and it just happens sometimes. Mm, agree. Uh, what do you think, Jonah? Yeah, I mean, outages are to be expected. I agree with you that the the biggest surprise or disappointment here is that a, a, a company that presumably has all kinds of disaster recovery plans and processes and procedures in place took seven hours to fully recover. Robinhood's um, outages occurred over a period of two days. Um, and that's that's concerning. And I think there's been, you know, certainly in the trading world, there's been a huge focus on operational resilience really since high-frequency trading became a thing. Um, and then following the last crisis and the flash crash and so forth. So I think, um, I mean, you know, good news here that, you know, this wasn't sort of a night trading type event, which had reper more broad repercussions. Um, I think also good news that Morgan Stanley has the 
pockets and the the customer service mentality to uh, you know provide their customers with the best price. I think they also, <laughs> if I'm being cynical about it, they have high net worth clients who are you know people who can afford lawyers. So uh, they were probably uh, smart to just try and put this one behind them by by giving their their customers the benefit of the best price. But um, yeah, I'd imagine it'll continue. Operational resilience will continue to be a focus going forward for these firms and for and for the regulators. I mean. Um, nobody, nobody likes to have their name in the headlines for these reasons. So hopefully they're, you know, going to pay a lot of attention after this. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, like you say, it's going to be one that uh, I imagine, given everything else on everybody else's list, they'll, they'll come back to eventually. Um, but um, yeah, outages in this side is uh, is never never a really good thing. All right. Well, from Morgan Stanley to Marcus. So um, a, a story over on the Telegraph. We have Marcus releases fixed term savings bonds. So story in the UK. Uh, the one year account pays one point four five percent, but customers can't make withdrawals during that period. So the um, online only offer is open to new and existing customers with balances of up to £250,000. So this move comes after the Bank of England cuts interest rates to a record low, increasing demand for fixed rate savings products. I mean, 1.45% savings is like just like a million miles above pretty much everything else that's over here in the UK right now, Eric. Like, uh, I mean, if um, if you weren't planning on putting all your money under your mattress just in case the uh, the apocalypse really kicks off, then uh, this might be the savings bank account for you, right? I mean, I just got an email notification from Monzo for one of my savings pots that's been reduced to 0.1%. And granted, that's an easy access cash savings account, but still, I mean... You know, it's it's a uh, it's pretty tight times in terms of how cash can make money for you right now. So, I think it's interesting with Marcus. I mean, I have a little bit of a sore spot for them because, as an American living in the UK, they wouldn't take me on either side of the pond because uh, I was looking to sign up with them when they launched over here. But I mean, um, you know, I think I think you will see demand for something like this as rates just go down across the board. Anything that is above that one percent now, I think, looks pretty appealing and. You know, a lot of people right now aren't going to want to tie up their money for a year, but there are, I think, plenty of people that will. And they've got a good user base over here. The marketing that they did, uh, not just in terms of advertising, but I would call the rates that they offered, the introductory rates, and even something like this, I'd classify that as marketing because they're kind of buying customers with higher rates that are going to have to come down at some point. So uh, to me, I don't think it's that much of a shift in the strategy, they're really trying to be ahead of the curve and offer a, have a more compelling offering than most of the competition and really build it around the brand. I, I wonder who they're aiming at with this, though. I mean, given the timing of this, I mean, is this people trying to who potentially have cashed out of uh, investments because of the, you know, the rapid demise of the market and looking for somewhere just to park that money for, for a period of time? Or, I mean, who, who, who really is... I mean, where I put my uh, put my savings right now is not particularly um, high up on my agenda as as much as where do I get milk and bread from. So you know, I mean, it's like uh, it feels like a strange time to come out with a you know a savings rate led uh, offer, Eric. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, there's certainly going to be less of an audience for it than there was two months ago, but I think it's still there. And I think you know, a company like Goldman Sachs isn't doing something like this unless they have the market data to back it up. So they're clearly seeing something. You know, we'll see how it lands. Um, but I think that they they see an opportunity that they're trying to react to. 
Very true. I mean, on these things, it's always, um, you know, there's probably a lot more smarter people with, uh, unfortunately, Alison spreadsheets over in Goldman Sachs who uh, have worked this one out that uh, will allow them to uh, to figure out where that market goes. But uh, all right, guys, uh, last story of the week this week. So this was uh, one over on uh, Money Nerd. This is does this April Fool's prank go too far? So on Wednesday, April 1st, the Money Nerd blog put up a product page for a coronavirus piggy bank. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, like bizarrely, not a lot of people got that it was a joke. So lots of people tried to buy this, which is probably saying quite a lot about the general public at this stage, I guess. So listed for £4.99, the product supposedly used ultraviolet light to sanitize the cash that was being put into this this piggy bank. So when readers clicked on the buy now button, they were taken to a separate page that then exposed the listing as an April Fool's. Uh, Money Nerd was one of few companies to do an April Fool's content this year. Earlier this month, Google announced it would forgo its annual pranks, uh, while CNN uh, urged readers to avoid them as well. Um, a member of K-pop band BTS, I have no idea with K-pop, I think we're going at a very different audience at this stage, uh, has has seen pushback for posting fake April Fool's coronavirus news. I mean, it, I, I did see one report that they had about 100,000 people click on that to buy one of these things, which is insane. Um, I mean, did you guys see any April Fool's or was, it, uh, was a lot of people sort of uh, making better ideas and staying clear of them this year? Oh, I was going to say, I think in general, you know, this, I think people are starting to get sick of the like corporate April Fool's jokes anyway. This is not a great year to be putting them out unless it's really funny. It would have to have been really funny and somehow not at all offensive, but it's still just very distracting. So yeah, I mean, I just think it's like, it's also a little too soon, you know, like the virus is hitting different cities at different times. And so depending on where you're sitting, literally like what city you're sitting in, this might be like, okay, don't even put that and a joke together. Um, but I think in general, people are just like getting over these corporate April Fool's stiff corporate April Fool's jokes um, to some degree. So yeah, I think it's like probably would have been better to just skip it. Definitely not tie it to, you know, COVID. Um, but, you know, here we are. There's always going to be somebody who does it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it's always good to try and retain some element of humor. But um, but like you say, from a corporate perspective, it's a bloody fine line to try and uh, to it's go hard down. It's already it? to uh, do, you know, it's already hard for corporations to do this well. You know, every year there's always some like real cringeworthy ones. So I mean, the, the only one that I did find funny um, was uh, one of my um, wife's friends sent her a picture of what was portraying to be Sky News saying all the kids were going back to school on Monday, um, which she, she was very excited about to start with and unfortunately found out it wasn't true so uh um but yeah i know i think from a corporate perspective it's probably one to try and stay away from right now right it's amazing you still get one of these every year it's just like why you know particularly this year i mean we didn't even have to go into the story just the question of does this april fool's prank go too far yes like yes it does like just stop there (laughs) just don't touch it don't even try however i will say i clicked on the link and they said, and who knows if this is true, that they have sold out 10,000 units in 24 hours and have had to go back to the factory to make more. So I don't know. Who knows how it's actually going to turn out for them? But I think bottom line is like the risk reward for an April Fool's prank is, uh, is pretty extreme if you're a company as opposed to an individual. And I think in times like these, it's just not smart. You got to have the right perspective on things. 
Well, if anything, they've probably just got another customer, and that's uh, that's good in these times. We support all small SMEs, don't we, at this stage? But uh, all right, guys. Well, that's probably all we have for this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you guys? Uh, starting with Alison, where can people find out more about you and your company? Sure. Uh, tech Ladies um, is a community for women in tech. We also help companies hire from our community, and our website is HireTechLadies.com. Fantastic. Uh, Nonita? Yeah, sure. Uh, so people can find me personally on LinkedIn. Happy to connect uh, with folks. And Nova Credit is a cross-border credit bureau. And our website is novacredit.com. Would love to have people pop up, look at what we do and, and sign up for a newsletter or connect with us with questions. Sounds good. Jonah? Uh, you can find more information about Claros at claros.com. That's Claros with a K. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Jonah Crane. Fantastic. And Eric? You can reach me directly, eric at 11fs.com or Eric Fulweiler on LinkedIn. That's Eric with a C. As for me, uh, head over to LinkedIn, David Breer. Thanks very much for listening this week. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us one of those reviews. It really helps other people to find the, the show. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech who isn't listening to the show, I mean, after three years, what are they doing with their life, quite frankly? Uh, pass the pod along and tell them all about the show and what we're up to. If you've got any suggestions, you can find us on pretty much every social media at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email us on podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye, guys.